Howdy, y'all, and welcome to another episode of the Texas Tolkien Talk podcast. Folks, if you like Tolkien, you've come to the right watering hole. I'm Chad Bornholt, Chad in Texas, and co-hosting with me today is my friend Chad High, or if you like, also Chad in Texas. Thank you, Chad. Well, y'all are in for a treat today because we have a very interesting topic lined up for you to listen and ponder over as our panel of guests discuss and tackle it right here on the Texas Tolkien Talk podcast. And if you want to get on the podcast and be a member of one of our distinguished panels in the near future, our elf friends, as we call them, stay tuned after the discussion and learn how you can be on the podcast. If this is the first time you're tuning in, well, howdy. Here at the Texas Tolkien Talk podcast, we bring in guests from all over the world to talk about the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. This is a podcast where you can take the lead. Any Tolkien topic is fair game. Chad and I moderate a panel of four to five guests who are enthusiastic about Tolkien and his legendarium and have a topic that they not only want to pose to their fellow panelists, but also to you listeners at home. We are so glad that you are tuning in and joining us today. We think it's going to be a really fun and thoughtful discussion. So kick off your shoes and stay a while, and we'll do our best to keep you entertained, or at least from falling asleep for the next half hour or so. Well, it's the job that's never started as takes longest to finish. Yeah, I think we've talked enough. Now let's go ahead and let our Elendili, that is our elf friends, introduce themselves. Let's begin, y'all. On today's episode of the Texas Tolkien Talk podcast, we have Tanya Plashkova. Hello, everyone. I'm Tanya. I live in New York. I originally come from Russia. So I got into Tolkien when I was 14 years old. It's a bit of a story. I always say that... It happened by chance, if chance you would call it. A few months after I arrived to U.S. with my family, I went with my mom and my sister to a local library because we decided to pick out a book in English to read together and kind of to learn English. So when we got there, we kind of didn't know what we want. We were really confused. So we kind of came over to a random shelf. And my mom said, look, here's talking. And my sister and I, we never heard the name Tolkien before. So we said, who? What? And she said, well, I'm not really sure who he is, but my boss, who was a very huge book geek, was really interested in, in this author. He was looking for his books. And so it's something that should be interesting. So that was really good enough for us. We just grabbed one of the books of the shelf and brought it home. The name of the book was The Hobbit, and that was really it. My mom and my sister, they quit pretty quickly, but I love the story. I read it with great difficulty, but I read it and that was it. Soon after, I read Lord of the Rings, starting with Two Towers, because Fellowship, there was only one copy in the library and it was basically not available. And me thinking it was trilogy and I'll just read a sequel, just started reading book two and was really confused. But anyway, that was how I was introduced to Tolkien. A few years later, I kept trying to get my hands on Silmarillion, but I couldn't. So I ended up reading the Book of Lost Tales instead. Really struggled through it. But then when eventually I got to Silmarillion, I breezed through it. It was so easy compared to the Book of Lost Tales. And I've been a Tolkien fan ever since. I really found my crowd when I finally got into Facebook and social media. First, I started joining talking groups. I just happened to be in the same group that Alan and Sean of Friends Important Podcast were in. So I knew Alan and Sean even before they, they started PPP. And I was one of their first listeners. And during the first season, I just happened to be a frequent character. 
they used to refer to me as Tanya from New York. And eventually when they started, when they were looking for a research assistant, I volunteered and I was, I guess, a first PPP staff member to be hired. And here I am. I'm still being research assistant for PPP, loving what I'm doing, what talking means to me. Really, I guess it really is about language for me. When I got into talking, as I said, it was because I needed to learn English. That was my first and foremost. I didn't know that talking was a language guy, especially English language guy. That was not something that I considered on you. I just kind of needed to know it, to learn it. And this is how it still is for me. It's about the beauty of the language. It's about all the language jokes that Professor Tolkien put into his writing. It's about the invented languages. But most importantly for me, it's about English language. And also joining us today is Jeff Lasala. Hey there, um, I'm Jeff Lasala. Uh, some might know me as Jeff L or Jeff from New York on the Prancing Pony podcast. By day, I'm a production editor for Macmillan Publishing, and I work primarily on tour books, which generally means science fiction and fantasy and horror, sometimes thrillers or YA. Um, but by night or weekends or just whenever I can sneak in time, I dabble in freelance writing. Uh, years ago, I wrote a couple of fantasy novels for Wizards of the Coast and some Dungeons and Dragons articles. But these days, the only thing I've had time for are my Tolkien musings, the Silmarillion Primer, and similar articles on Tor.com. For me, Tolkien was kind of always just there in the background when I was a kid. I can't really recall a time when I didn't know who he was. There's just a sense of home and kinship in Middle Earth that no other book can match. And so that's why I keep coming back. Whenever the world gets dark, I can always think, at least there is Middle Earth. In the end, the shadow is only a small and passing thing. That is why I get the concepts of recovery and consolation that Tolkien fans bring up so often. Technically, I was introduced to The Lord of the Rings when my dad paraphrased the story to me and my brother when we were kids at bedtime, which really sticks with me because my dad is a scientist. And in the grand scheme, he is far more interested in the laws of nature or technical science fiction than fairy tales. But he did share this. And then I got into the Rankin-Bass Hobbit movie, moved on to the books, and it just sort of snowballed from there. Uh, and I would like to add also that I, too, go to Tanya when I need some fact-checking for deep Tolkien lore. I think we all do. That's understandable. <laughs> That's understandable. So, Jeff, uh, all the work that you just mentioned, where can we find that? So if you just go to Tor.com, T-O-R.com, there is a, uh, a search engine, a search option, search field. And um, if you just put in Silmarillion Primer, two words, you'll find that whole batch, but plus others that I've written, my name will pop up and you can click on the name or you can click, click on a series name and it'll just populate the screen with, with those. I absolutely love the Silmarillion Primer and I was quoting it to other people before I ever even knew Jeff. On today's episode of the Texas Tolkien Talk podcast, we're talking with Tanya Plashkova and Jeff Lasala. They're going to take us through an episode we're calling The End of All Things. Thoughts on the ending of Tolkien's Legendarium. I went through pretty much most of Tolkien's writings on the subject of the end of his Legendarium. And I noticed that starting from the beginning, from the Book of Lost Tales on, all the way to his latest essays, pretty much a few elements, they are always 
present one talking is trying to talk about the end of his legendarium and the end of his world, the end of Arda as he envisioned it. Those are usually it's return of the Melko into the world, final battle that ends in complete destruction of the world, and the end of Arda, the physical world that was originally created by the Ainur. And after that, it gets a little bit more muddy because after that, either comes the second music or rebuilding of existing world by the Valar with the help of elves and men. So all these elements were present pretty much from the beginning of his writing all the way to the end in various degrees. Some ideas he maybe abandoned or didn't develop as much. Some were developed later on and became, he expanded on in his writings, but they are all present. And as we all know, Christopher Tolkien, when he was working on compiling Simlarion from his father's writings, he removed many of the references to the end of the world, but he did not remove everything. They are still sprinkled around Silmarillion here and there. And I'm going to read one of two of these. So this first one comes from our Lindeley, and it goes like this. Never since have the Ainur made any music like to this music, although it has been said that a greater still shall be made before Iluvatar by the choir of the Ainur and of the children of Iluvatar after the end of days. And then the themes of Iluvatar shall be played aright and take being in the moment of their utterance, for all shall then understand fully his intent in their part, and each shall know the comprehension of each, and Iluvatar shall give to their thought the secret fire being well pleased. And later on in chapter one of Silmarillion, he continues, Yet of old the Valar declared to the elves in Valinor that men shall join the second music of the Ainur, whereas Iluvatar has not revealed what he purposes for the elves after the world's end, and Melkor has not discovered it. So here we got second music, men joining in, Ainur playing, and all over Silmarillion, we got other references sprinkled around, the references to the last battle. For example, Menil Makar, that is Elvish name for constellation Orion, is said it forebodes the last battle that shall be at the end of days. Also, we got references to dwarves who believe that Ilvatar will hallow them and give them a place among the children in the end. And then their part shall be to serve Aule to aid him in remaking of Arda after the last battle. And finally, we got Arpharazon trapped in the caves of the Forgotten until the last battle and the Day of Doom. So these are all references that we actually got in Silmarillion as it's published to the end of Arda. What I find interesting is, in, so that's all essentially from the published Silmarillion. You know, several references, as you pointed out, Tanya, that point to a definitive end and um, that there will be a battle. There's, there's a conflict. But of course, there's, so, there's no particulars. Like that seems to be what Christopher Tolkien kept out of it, are the, are the actual developments of what, how will it actually end? It will end, but does it even speak of a victory in one way or another, aside from the implied victory of, you know, the Valar and Lupitar and all that, just because the, if there's a second music, if there is a implied, you know, remade Arda, 
then of course there's victory, but you know, we don't get any particulars. I, so I find that interesting that there's talk of an end, but whether Tolkien was uncertain how that should go or Christopher just didn't have enough to tie it together definitively. Well, I'm pretty certain that Christopher didn't have the source material to give us the particular, which is a shame because just like you, Jeff, I really want some of those particulars that we don't have from what we know from the history of Middle Earth. One of the things that I was thinking of as Tanya was going through the different endings, the different versions, they're all very, very similar. There's subtle differences, but they're all really similar. And I was thinking about the stark differences in Tolkien's beginnings of the Legendarium. Well, the Ainulindale is very similar. That's similar from the Book of Lost Tales forward. But Tolkien's thinking on the beginnings of Arda changes a lot, as we know. And I'm wondering why he spent so much time thinking about changing the beginnings of his legendarium and keeping the ending so similar. Could it have anything to do with his relationship with his Catholic faith and his relationship with the Book of Revelation and how sort of the ending of his legendarium is so similar to the book of Revelation. I don't know. I'm, I'm just kind of spitballing. What do y'all think about that? Oh, definitely. I mean, his faith is evident in all of that. I don't know about the variance of his beginnings, but that there will be an end time and that it will be victorious and evil will be overthrown. That is a given, <laughs> I think, given his faith. So yeah, I don't, I don't think there's, a, there's any doubt. One thing I'm curious about Tell me if I'm wrong, if you know otherwise, Tanya, especially. When I was looking at some of these same quotes from the History of Middle-Earth books, um, I guess probably mostly from The Shaping of Middle-Earth, it seemed like the summary of the final battle, like the particulars that, that he did write, almost always follow the War of Wrath description. It's like it suddenly telescopes far ahead to the very end, and it seems like that was written before The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. And so there's references... And you can tell, like, I don't know the dates of when certain manuscripts were written. I've been terrible at keeping track of those things. But, you know, the end of the Quinta in, in The Shaping of Middle-Earth, while he's talking about the War of Wrath, and then soon after the, the end, he's also still talking about gnomes. And in The War of Wrath, when the orcs perish, few remain to trouble the world thereafter. Like, this is not taken into account Third Age, Second Age, Third Age stuff. So I feel like the fact that Christopher Tolkien kept out of those particulars sort of dates it in itself, just because it didn't take into account so many later events that he wrote about. They, in that sense, they're like Book of Lost Tales version of the event, you know? If the details of the War of Wrath were also like the wrap-up, <laughs> that was already felt like an ending was happening and it did not look ahead to a second or third age. But anyway, I just found that interesting that the other details around that description of the end don't match up anyway with the published Silmarillion. Um, there's still talk of, in the War of Wrath, there are the sons of the Valar. What? No, not, not in the published Silmarillion. Um, the particulars of the last sons of Feanor as well, giving up the Silmarils. And Maedros gives up his and then takes his own life. Like he surrenders it back and then kills himself. Whoa, this is all different anyway. So how can I trust this version of the end? So I was thinking that all his different versions of the end that always involve a battle are there not only because he was Catholic, and yes, it really reminds us of a book of revelations, but he was always drawing his inspirations from particular North mythology. It sounds a lot like Armageddon of Christianity, but also like Ragnarok from the North mythology. The idea is in order to build new, better world, you still have to destroy the old one. This is mm. where he is coming from. 
I yeah. think this is why this theme of battle, no matter how you turn it, it's always present in all the different versions of what he wrote that we are going to get to. It kind of reminds me of when he was a young man, he was thrust into battle and it was supposed to be the war to end all wars, right? And then the next thing you know, there's a bigger war than that and his kids are in it. It's just like on his books, whenever you see Bilbo goes off, he basically, what we would call, he wins his adventure, like what we would think of, you know, you most modern movies and stories in general, it would end before Bilbo even came back home. He wouldn't even come back home. The movie would end, right? If it was a modern book, the book would end when they killed the dragon, first of all. But at the very least, it would end when the Battle of the Five Armies was over with. But then he gets back home and things are screwed up. It's And then the same exact thing with Lord of the Rings. It's almost like it's a never-ending thing with Tolkien where he knows it does not matter how much we win and how much we rid the world of war and evil and enemies and all that kind of stuff, it's going to come back. And every time it comes back, it's going to hurt the world that we love, even though it's going to be rebuilt. And so I think it's actually, I think it's very apt for this end war, the Dagor Dagorath, where it's like, it's the final war and the world is going to be destroyed because how could it not be destroyed if it's the final war? And then the, the, the rebuilding, it's like it paints this really pretty picture in my mind of how after this horrible final war just destroyed everything, it's going to be rebuilt the way it was originally intended to be built to begin with, with no screw ups interjected into it. It's interesting that, you know, we're talking about endings and it's interesting that the two parts of the legendarium that Tolkien really started when he was in World War One, when he was recovering from his injuries during World War One, that the parts of the books of Lost Tales that he's working most on are, one is a story about an ending, the fall of Gondolin, and the other story is about a beginning. It's the Aino Lindale. Those are the two parts of the legendarium that he worked the most on when he was recovering during World War One. That's just something that occurred to me while you were talking, Chet. It's just an a connection I'd never thought about until just now. But on the other hand, it's interesting that he never actually wrote this end. He always referred to it. He kept mentioning it. He made himself some notes, but he never wrote that story. Mm-hmm. And he never really finalized that story. And I think that's partially because it's the end of our world that he was trying to write about because he always said that Arda and Middle Earth is really Earth. And Earth is still here, so the story is not really written. It'd be yeah. kind of hard to predict the end of, as of far as all I, this other stuff. Is just he's making he's see. making a mythology for the way it began that we can't really prove otherwise. But it'd be pretty easy to prove that the other thing hasn't happened yet. As far as I know, the Earth is still here. Yep, still yeah, and, and so are the orcs. <laughs> <laughs> there are lots of yes. orcs out there. Yeah. You know, the more we talk about it, the more I always come back to that sort of, and I'm sure we've all experienced the most frustrating, one of the most frustrating tendencies of Tolkien is the most heavy hitting dramatic moments are the briefest. And so that's, I mean, here we have something where he's kind of outlined vaguely. And so you get it a few times beyond the public slow run. You have to go and look for it. Whereas the War of Wrath, which we do have, is still so sparse. (laughs) There's so many questions that you have when you read it. So many questions. It's just, and it's not even, I mean, that's the most obvious maybe, but if you go back even further, actually on the, on the same theme of 
even when there's victory, there's such distraction. If you go back to the um, the first time where the Valar go and drag Melkor out of Atumno and all of that, like that war was extremely destructive and we know almost nothing about it. <laughs> it's, it's frustrating. Like you get, okay, elves did not witness it. So that wasn't recorded, I guess. You know, we are the reader. We'd like to know. We're interested. We do seem to get information from time to time that no one really should have had witnessed to. So it's a little tricky. Every single time there's some sort of very big event, it's very brief. It's like Tolkien, I don't know if it's to keep it mythic, but then again, that's in it's the long like, term. It's almost like he was doing it on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> I can remember even, you know, Jeff is referencing like these big things, like the war for the sake of the elves and the war of Roth and mm-hmm. uh, us wanting to know more. I can remember being a kid and reading about after the battle of the five armies and Bilbo and Gandalf's journey back to Hobbiton and mm-hmm. Tolkien kind of references, I don't have the pages, I don't have the wording in front of me, but it kind of references that they they saw this and they went here. Stopped a few places. Yeah, yeah, they stopped a few places. And I can remember being 10 years old and going myself, like, I, I want to know what they did on the way back. All I got was yeah. one sentence about what they did on the way back. I know. Yep. And Beowarn was laughing real loudly and stuff. <laughs> did y'all notice in Nature of Middle Earth, during that first war where the elves didn't witness it, you notice that I think it was in 1959 or somewhere around there that he put that Melion and the oh. five future wizards yeah. were there guarding them. That was. Oh, yeah. What section was that in, Chad? I can't remember. I don't have it in front of me. The, the details of the march, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's. Yeah, that was that's that's tantalizing, and yet I don't know. I almost feel like it's too it's too smooth, too on the nose. It makes to me that section made makes Middle Earth seem a little too small. Everyone knows everyone, kind of feeling. It's a little Skywalkerish, um, in other words. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I, like on the one hand, you know, I would love to be great to have more information on on, on the lower end, so we see what his interaction was with elves early on in a way that makes sense in Lord of the Rings. Like you want it to connect in some way or at least match up with the Astari chapter in the Unfinished Tales. But, but at the same time, if they were there all along, I don't know, it's too much. To me, that's too much like Solo. <laughs> Everything's explained. Everything was, you know. Oh, and here during the, the March of the Elves, we find out why Gandalf later has long eyebrows that reach beyond the brim of his hat. You know, like, I don't want to know that from here. It's too, don't connect it. Don't connect every dot. Tolkien was good at not connecting dots. So when he does it, it's, it's a little frustrating. But one of the things that I, I certainly, I always feel like we should mention more, but doesn't get mentioned, is the fact that when we're reading Nature of Middle-Earth and most of History of Middle-Earth is we're reading his notes. We're not reading what he thought we'd all be discussing like canon, you know? So I feel like that should be a factor at all times. I mean, technically the published Silmarillion too, but at least that's a little bit closer to what he meant at a certain point in time. <laughs> I say that a lot whenever I'm talking to people online. There's, I, I do a, I spend a whole lot of time explaining novice to intermediate type knowledge online because I don't want to go over anyone's head, but I also don't want to like make it look like I'm talking down to anybody. I, my, I just want to teach everybody everything I know. And a lot of times you'll have, I run into people pretty often, which say that doesn't count because it's not part of the canon. And then I'll say, what are you calling canon? Because none of that, there's only two books that you mm-hmm. really should consider. Well, maybe maybe Bombadil, right? So, so there's three, right? So I'm like, and, and I get it all the time. Well, if it's not part of the Silmarillion, I'm like, you. if you're going to consider all this other stuff to not be official because 
Tolkien didn't actually want it published, then you have to consider the same thing. A lot of people don't think about the fact that that was Christopher just piecing together as well as he could. And, and inventing small pieces of narrative too. To yeah, exactly. Gaps. Exactly. Just, you know, this, I'm going to try my dad. Not large wanted parts, this, but small parts. Yeah. 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 But like my dad wanted this published his whole life. He could never pull it off. And now his name is extremely popular and I can get it done. One of the great things that Christopher has done is he's given us basically everything his father ever wrote. I mean, we have, it's, pub, it's published everything for the most part, except for some small like academic things. Almost every word that Tolkien ever wrote has been published aside from small number of things. And so we as Tolkien fans have to, and this is something that most other fans of, of other authors, don't, they don't have to do. We have a lot to choose from and we have to make a decision as to what is canon and what isn't. Because y'all can probably think off the top of your head, five to 10 different characters where you can think of three or four different versions of some, some story or some origin or something like that. And you have to make a choice. What are you going to go with? And so I know, I don't know about Tanya, Jeff, I don't know about y'all. I know Chad is a big proponent of what did Tolkien write last. I know that's something that's, that helps him keep things straight. I don't always subscribe to that notion, but yeah. I know that's something that Chad kind of helps, I think helps him keep it straight. I subscribe yeah. to this most of the time. Yeah. But there are a couple of uh, notable exceptions, but most of the time, this is my go-to. Glad you're on Kelleborn. I, <laughs> that's one I, of them. I, I think it's worth thinking about, but I don't like settling on that as like the higher priority because some of those were, I don't know, they just, they seemed like the opinions of a really old man who, who's maybe forgotten some of his earlier ideas. They're great. Some of them are great, but like, I'm not a big fan of going back and putting the sun and moon present all along. You know, I think it's, I love the myth of it. And I, I, would, I, I would love the, and, I, and there are elements where, it looks like he was trying to connect them both. Like that you could still have the two trees. You could still have a world of darkness. And then when the sun is risen, it's just unveiled. It was there all along, but it was hidden. Like that stuff where you kind of have a little of both. I love that. But all of his later ideas don't always land well for me. But yeah, you know, plenty of them do. So it's, it's just hit and miss. Yeah. I like to go with which one I like the most. That's what I go yeah, with. That's a great one. That's, that's a good one. Unfortunately, the one that I like the most is not always the one that subscribes to my idea of what was most canon to Tolkien, because the thing that Chad was saying earlier is a lot of times when I hear these arguments from these people online, a lot of times what I say is, if you're going to say what's canon and what's not canon, the most defendable thing besides only the published stuff, the most defendable thing is I usually say, the stuff that he wrote on September 2nd, 1973 is the most. The stuff that he wrote on September 1st, 1973 is the next most. And then the stuff that he wrote on August the 31st, you know, like I just keep on going backwards and I say that. But because basically anything that his hand put onto paper, I consider that to be canon. It's just that a whole lot of it contradicts the other yeah. part of it. So and you can't yeah. get around that. You can never avoid it because he was thinking right. to himself, never exactly. anticipating that anyone was going to see you're, this. Exactly. You're allowed to be inconsistent with your notes that are not published as far as you know. Like, so people, I, when people talk about the inconsistency of, of information in Tolkien lore, I, I always feel like that's unfair. It's like, he didn't know you were going to be doing this. <laughs> and if you write a fantasy novel or, or make notes or write a, outline first you absolutely this every single writer is going to do the same thing and it's like if you died before you published it and then someone later took your notes and then 
had arguments on the internet about your inconsistencies. Well, you weren't done with it. You know, you don't, you don't get to judge it in that full form. You know, it'd be kind of like if we had a whole bunch of people that got to see every single note that I ever played on an instrument that think I'm horrible, <laughs> but I only show them the right. good stuff. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, here's a question. This is not necessarily picking up from where we are right here, but something I keep thinking about with the, the end of Arda stuff, I guess it's from the shaping middle earth, but I know it's quoted again in the fall of Gondolin, which is what I happen to have open. But to me, this sort of speaks to the idea that like, I personally I like this lore. I like some of his ideas around the particulars of the ending and what happens. Morgoth comes out from the void and, you know, Arendel comes down and like who kills who and like that stuff's all great. But I also am glad there's not a settled version of it really. And it wasn't in the published film. And I'm kind of glad there's a certain, when you know, the ending, there's something lost, I think. But on that point, what I find interesting from this passage, I'm going to read a sentence or two because this kind of comes up. Thus spoke the prophecy of Mandos, which he declared in Valmar at the judgment of the gods. And the rumor of it was whispered among all the elves of the West. When the world is old and the powers grow weary, then Morgoth shall come back through the door out of the timeless night, and so on and so on. So a bunch of elves heard the rumor. They, they know the ending too. I feel like now the people in the world, not just the reader, the actual in-world characters get these details. I feel like that does something to the themes of hope and despair. It's like, well, we, we know it's all going to end this particular way. And I find that like not as compelling. Right? I find that an odd thing that the elves of the West, okay, so the elves in Valinor only maybe, but still it's interesting to me. But it also is all the more reason for why I think it's, I'm glad there's not a definitive end defined. You know, I like it when it's discussed. I like when Finrod kind of talks about Arda remade and Yathrabeth and, and that's all good stuff, but like, it's also murky. The future's murky and it should be. It, it always was to the Valar and the music, right? So I like that theme. More information early on, uncertainty towards the end seems to make sense. And it's also pretty, I don't know, it, it aligns well with real life, I think. It would be a little bit less enjoyable if there was a definitive ending because like what I notice is the stuff that everybody knows is less interesting because there's nothing to teach on that. Right. If everything was so solid, including the ending, everyone would know it and there would be nothing to teach. The cool part about a lot of this is that there is so many different things that are so vague that they're hard to completely pick up on. And every single person that reads it sees something that the other people didn't see. And so when you start comparing what you saw with everyone else, the total melded mind that everyone gets together from what they all took out of something, it actually makes it better that way. And, and you kind of get to visualize basically an aggregate of everything that everyone has already come up with as one. I actually find it very interesting that, uh, as Jeff said, it, for example, elves know. But in uh, many of the writings, we actually find out that elves don't know. That one of the features is that elves don't know what's going to happen to them at the end or after the end. It's actually well known what's going to happen with the men. Are they going to join the music or, as it was written in the Book of Lost Tale, they're supposed to unite with elves and they're supposed to help with the war. And if they're not going to do that, the world is going to end. So we know what happens to men. 
But what happens to elves? Actually, wisest elves do not know. And apparently Valor don't know. And this is very interesting to me. This was a very constant feature in all of the possible endings that Tolkien envisioned. And I wonder why that is like that. I think it, it fits with the frame narrative too, you know, because we we understand where a lot of the source material is coming from. It's coming from, especially the histories of Middle Earth and the Silmarillion is coming from translations from the Elvish. And so if the elves don't know, as Tanya just said, and as Jeff says, uh, it fits with real life because the inhabitants of the world that they're living in, they can't, even if elves have some sort of elvish foresight or there's some sort of magia that they can utilize that they still are not sure. And that's where the different versions come from. So it's, it fits. I think it's very, it's, it's comforting to me. And I'm able to suspend my disbelief because the way that this is written helps me sort of rectify that with, you know, real world attributes about how we don't know what's going to happen in the future either. We can guess and we can use context clues, but we don't, we really don't know. And neither do the elves. Something I've thought about before with the Dagar Dagarath was, you know how through the entire legendarium, somebody isn't believing something that they should, or someone isn't working with someone else as they should. And that contributes greatly to their failure. You know, so what I what I like to think of is that by the time it came to this final war, everyone had finally gotten their act together and thought, okay, all of these millennia, we haven't worked together and we see how it has always led to our doom. And now we're going to go ahead and trust what these angelic beings tell us we should do. And we're all going to get together and do what we should have done years ago. And then there's utter victory when they finally get together and every living being, including those who primarily exist in spirit form and the ally, they're all together and they finally win because they finally did what it was required to do to begin with in order to be successful. Is Tolkien giving us a life lesson here? Like all the free peoples of the world should unite and we can accomplish anything. Is this, is this Tolkien's always. one stab at allegory? <laughs> always. It's like Snape. He's he always. had a few stabs at allegory, actually. But anyway, <laughs> that's another topic. Not according to him. But no, yes, no, no, but no, 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 no. You can't take his word for it. No, no, no. Yeah, I really dislike allegory. Here's an allegory for you. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the best that he wrote. <laughs> I've written a story allegory. called Leaf by Niggle, but I hate allegory, though. I hate it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so um, and like the and the fall of Gondolin with uh, these these monsters that are half machine and they can fly, right? Yeah, that's applicability, Chad. That's not how. That's applicability. Written right after he he was he was uh, sent home from being attacked from above. So Jeff, you mentioned Atherbes before, and Atherbes is one of those really interesting texts where Tolkien actually gives very different view of an end of his world than pretty much in any other text. It's a very Christian worldview, probably closest that Tolkien ever comes to describing Christianity. And I wanted to read a couple of short passages talking about the end of the world as it's describing Athrabes. So for those who don't know Athrabes, Finrod and Andrath, is a, a conversation between Alvin King Finrod and a mortal woman named Andrath. And at one point, Andrath mentions that uh, there is something called 
old hope uh, that's been passed down among the men as a story, as a belief that something is going to happen. And Finrad is very interested and asking her to describe what that is. And she says, so those of old hope, they say that the one will himself enter into Arda and heal men and all them marring from the beginning to the end. This they also say, or they think, is the rumor that has come down through years uncounted, even from the days of our undoing. And later on, they continue. They talk about how Eru himself is going to enter into Arda and somehow heal what they call the Mari, which is all the evil that a kind of Melkor that came into the world with Melkor's discord and causes all the evil in the world. And Arrow is going to come in and uh, somehow make it all better. And they kind of can't figure out how exactly Arrow is going to do this. And they say, if Arrow wished to do this, I do not doubt that he would find a way, though I cannot foresee it. For, as it seems to me, even if he in himself were to enter in, he must still remain also as he is, the author without. And yet, Andres, to speak with humility, I cannot conceive how else this healing could be achieved, since Arrow will surely not suffer Melkor to turn the world to his own will and triumph in the end. Yet there is no power conceivable greater than Melkor, save Arrow only. Therefore Arrow, if he will not relinquish his work to Melkor, who must else proceed to mastery, then Arrow must come in to conquer him. And this is really interesting and very Christian idea. And it's never explained in this text how exactly this is going to be accomplished. And in some other texts that Tolkien wrote, he actually refers to this. And he says there was no way they could have known how exactly this will be accomplished. And this is very unique and very interesting take on End of the World because it's not the second music. It's not remaking of the world by breaking the Silmarils and rekindling the trees. It's none of these other things. So what do you think of this possible ending to Arda? Yeah, I love that section. I also like that it's very speculative on Finrod's part, but he has the inspiration to even say all this is interesting. Like he's, where is it coming from? We don't really know. We don't know what context he's getting this. He's somewhat prophetic at times, but yeah, you're right. It doesn't bear a strong resemblance to any other end of world developments. You know, unless Tolkien rethought it and then revisited it again, like later in life, then it might have been different. It might still lead to art of remade, but through a different mechanism. One thing I really love about it, too, um, it reminds me uh, about a C.S. Lewis quote that I brought up once in the Silmarillion Primer in the War of Wrath article, actually. And this is from Mere Christianity, where Lewis writes, But I wonder whether people who ask God to interfere openly and directly in our world quite realize what it will be like when he does. When that happens, it is the end of the world. When the author walks onto the stage, the play is over. I love that because that's what he's talking about here. If it gets to that point, (laughs) that is the author coming in, but also the implication that we can't imagine what that's like, you know? So yeah, it's very, a very Christian moment in an otherwise spiritual, but not so in your face, (laughs) legendarium. Seems to me like C.S. Lewis is kind of saying with that quote, you keep wishing for this, but you may not like it if it actually yeah. comes true. <laughs> he's, he's, I think he's kind of saying, you know, you want intervention, but 
it's not like God steps in, the author comes in onto the stage, does the thing you want, and then withdraws. No, once you've done that, all pretenses are gone. This is, there's no, faith isn't even a thing. It's just absolutes. So yeah, it's, and I think that's why it's hard for Andreth to kind of fathom that moment. And even Finrod's kind of like, spitballing a little bit in a wise fashion that he does. I'm very big team Finrod, so. Oh, aren't we all? It, it does make, <laughs> it, it's one of the things that makes Finrod so likable. If the, as if there wasn't enough. It, it reads like he's just, he's just thinking about it for the first time as it's coming out of his mouth in a way that's, that makes that kind of endearing. Well, that, Which actually he does. Because yeah, it's yeah. Andreth who tells him about this and Andreth herself doesn't really believe in this and right. at one point she says what do you mean you believe in this and he said of course I believe in this and then he goes to explain how this is prophetic and of course this was given to men because it was men who are supposed to achieve this healing when arrow comes somehow with help of men they're going to make it all better and this is going to benefit the elves again Elves don't know what's going to happen to them at the end, but they have this hope that somehow things are going to turn out well for them. So Fenrod embraces this. Oh, yeah. Everything everything about Fenrod, like from the moment he finds the, the humans, everything about him. And, and this, when I first read the author Beth, I was thinking, oh, to be able to speak that well on the spur of the moment about something mm-hmm. that is so complicated. Profound, yeah. It's, yeah, it's to speak so eloquently. It's impossible for us to fathom, you know. That reminds me, Tanya, where, where can our listeners find the author Beth if they haven't read it yet? Author Beth is published in Margatha Turin, which is volume 10 of the History of Middle-earth, a book I highly recommend to everybody because everything in it is really, really interesting. If you can buy one volume of the History of Middle-earth, it should be that. One. I've I long I have been calling I've been calling Tanya Miss History of Middle Earth for a long time. So once and for all, let's get Tanya to rate all of them in order. Because <laughs> she knows them, she knows them better than all but maybe one person that we all know, right? Because I've actually had this conversation with her before. She goes, I think we know somebody that knows better than that. <laughs> before Tanya goes, I always tell people if you're gonna pick two, it's it's 10 and three. Those are the my favorites are 10 and three. But Tanya, go ahead. See, she'll tell me I'm wrong, I'm sure. No, you're not wrong. <laughs> three are probably the best. Yeah. Three is just a very enjoyable. It's just a really enjoyable read. Interesting things are found in 10, 11, and 12. The most interesting. Although they are all really worth reading because each one has its own little gems. Yeah, 11 is really underrated. You don't hear people reference 11 a lot, but 11 has some really good stuff in it. Well, you've got a lot of people referencing 11 with the uh, Rings of Power thing coming out because they're using it to gripe about the TV show. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. They're quoting one little thing, and I guarantee you they don't know anything about 11. They just, somebody else mentioned it, so they're all well, quoting that person. They're quoting each other. They're not yeah. quoting the book even anymore. Yeah. yeah. So Tolkien goes on in the early text called the Quenta, which is the only text where the end is somehow described more or less in full. And it's described as part of the second prophecy of Mandas, where uh, Mandas prophesizes that the world is going to end with the war. But after the war, Feanor is finally finally going to hand Silmarils over to Yavanna, who is going to break them open. And using the light, she's going to rekindle the trees and uh, the mountains of Valinor will be raised and the whole world will be renewed by this light of the trees. 
And this is how it stood when Tolkien was working on The Lord of the Rings and when he picked up writing Silmarillion after he finished The Lord of the Rings. But eventually he went into a little bit of a different direction. He replaced the whole rekindling of trees with the concept of the second music and the remaking of the world. And also he began to develop the ideas that he called Ardamard, which is the world that we see in Silmarillion and the Lord of the Rings, and ultimately the world that we live in today, which is the world that Ainur originally made that contains that Melkor element. And after the end of the world, the remaking and the second music supposed to create what he called Arda Healed. And how is this going to be accomplished with the help of man? He says that the purpose of man was to come into the world and somehow heal the problems that were created originally. And this was really his last word on a subject that there will be something called Arda Hild and man will play an integral role in uh, creating it and somehow hopefully elves will be part of this Arda Hild although they will play no part in accomplishing it and this was how he at least at the end of his life envisioned how his legendarium is going to end. I think y'all know that I like the, the ending right before that better. <laughs> I really like the whole Fanor giving the Silmarils back to Yavanna and Turin showing up, them on way and Melkor and all that. I like that one better, but it is neat the way that he did change his mind towards the end there. There's a few things that he changed his mind to that I wish he hadn't. That's one of them. Well, the good news is Turin shows up regardless because war Mm -hmm. happens regardless. The old world has to end and be broken before the new world is built. And it's always Melkor's fault because as all the problems in Arda start with Melkor, they're supposed to end with Melkor as well. So Melkor will be there to kind of bring down his own tree, sort of say, and create his own destruction and destroy the world with it. The one thing I do like about that version, though, is how it's better than had Melkor never done his thing. It's almost like the whole evil will have been good to have been and yet remain evil, right? So having it healed after the Melkor element was in and then is removed, it is neat that it's better than had it never even been that way to begin with it's neat that it it kind of hits that same kind of theme from before it's the ultimate catastrophe yeah in the opera beth isn't there some speculation on finrod's part that that might be the part the elves play sort of they're bringing the memory of what was so it's like that's how they're carrying the marred memory in to make the new one better like having known that this occurred i think that could be their part of it it's just like since they're all about remembering everything that's what Finrod surmises, right? Isn't that's yeah. kind of like his that's where he gets with yeah. within that, yeah. In the nature of Middle Earth, there is the chapter The Numenorean Catastrophe and End of Physical Amon. In that, not not the whole thing, but there is an excerpt in there that I came across that just felt relevant, at least, to this discussion, which is uh, I'll read some of this. So this is referring to the catastrophe, which is the 
essentially the, um, the sinking of Numenor and the reshaping of the world, right? It's becoming, it's the, the fashion of the world has changed. This is Iluvatar making some changes. And so that's the catastrophe. And he writes, the catastrophe represents a definitive intervention of Eru and therefore in a sense a change of the primal plan. It is a foretaste of the end of Arda. The situation is much later than conversation of Finrod and Andrath and could not then be foreseen by anyone, not even Manwe. In a sense, Eru moved forward the end of Arda as far as it concerned the elves. They had fulfilled their function and we approached the dominion of men, hence the vast importance of the marriages of Baron and Tuar, okay, etc. The next paragraph says the elves are dying. They, whether in Amman or outside, will become Fear, housed only in memory until the true end of Arda. So it's not that this is the end, it's that they're kind of done at this point. <laughs> and Arda will continue on for however many ages, but the elves part is already wrapping up. And what I find interesting about that is, I think of the, the rings of power discussions and the speculation about the new show, and there's this whole, oh, the second ages are still expanding, it's all young, but no, the elves, it's already wrapping up for them. It's not, they always say, oh, the third age declined. Yeah, but the elves were declining in the second age too, up until the, that part of the second age is the catastrophe. So things are just on this gradual decline much earlier than I think a lot of people realize. And I know it's something I kind of came up in when I was doing the Silmarillion primer because there's some mention of when men awake, when there is great light, the sun rises, that's when elves begin their decline. So even at the beginning of the first age, when years are being counted, that's the decline. <laughs> so it's like elves and men have a different timeline altogether in the span of the full existence of Arda. And I just found this excerpt fascinating because it's, you know, it's a foretaste of the end. It isn't the end. Catastrophe in the second age is not the end, but it's giving a, a preview. And in reality for the elves, it's things are changing because they're going to become essentially spirit and memory and not physically interacting with the world at a certain point. But actually mm -hmm. this quote continues and I oh, would sure. like to read the remainder of that quote Perfect. and it continues and says are they meaning the elves they must await the issue of the war and only then and of their redemption for Gnus by Finrod for their true returning corporeal or in arrows equivalent in order remade so what they are saying is that there is hope this astal this idea of astal is being introduced in this passage that eventually see i find it fascinating that they're talking about redemption of the elves as a whole race and that the this redemption is coming and this quote it mentions the war and the war it's referring to is uh, the final war that will break the world and that elves after the war will be part of this new world even though as we know Elves themselves don't know that they will be, but here they are guessing that somehow they will be brought into this new order healed. So I find this also really fascinating. And it also refers to Finrod and that conversation with Andrath, and that even when this conversation took place in the first age, Finrod and I guess by extension, all the elves somehow knew that this is going to happen. Yeah, it is fascinating. And, and it is 
the, the word redemption is a curious choice because elves didn't really have a fall in this in the, the mortal way. Well, this is all the facts that I have for now. So we all talked about all these possible and the token contemplated, and I just wanted to have your opinion which one would you prefer he had written, or how would he have ended his legends? So everyone knows that I like the one where Feanor gives the Silmarils back, they're broken open, Turin is escorted in with Gurthang and kills Melkor, and it's like a big, uh, it's like a big fanfare type thing, like like they've uh, they've all won and everyone has come together. So I believe everyone knows mine. So we'll go to the others. Well, I have a quick counter question for you about that. So you like that version. Does Feanor break the Silmarils willingly or grudgingly in your version? Okay. So in my, that, my so many questions that come from yeah, that brief yeah. summary. So in my vision of this, yeah. and I, I'm actually like most things that I know, I'm actually kind of borrowing some of my thoughts from others that I've seen before. Very little of my uh, opinions are not plagiarized. So, so, uh, so basically what I envision is something that Corey told me when we, when I first met him and he envisioned it kind of like the very last scene of the original Star Wars movie where they've just blown up the Death Star and they're all going down there and that, you know, that C major, that, so that's the way I envision. And it's like everyone has finally agreed that what's best for everyone is to do this. And so the way I see it is that Erendil comes down from the sky, hands the Silmaril, over to Feanor, Feanor willingly hands it over to Yavanna and Anwe and Tulkas come in holding on to each arm of Melkor and Turin is brought in, handed the sword, the sword is put back together, right? It's no longer broken. And then they make Melkor lean over and they actually kill his body once and for all. I, I envision all that as, as it's all being arided and I, I don't see it as being begrudgingly done. I see it all as this is what you should have done originally and everything would have turned out much better. And then, and then basically like the whole thing, you remember that one version says that Turin gets the, uh, he gets the revenge for men. He avenges mankind for all the hurts that Morgoth did to mankind. I just love that, that version. And of course, a lot of my vision of it is from Corey. I get it. There's so much that's so cool in that. It's just big. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, there's a lot of questions and details that you just, you're left to imagine. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know if I can say I have a favorite, but I will say again, kind of what I was saying earlier. I, I do think that, I prefer the vague stuff just because knowing too much about the end changes the journey, I think. So I, yeah, I, and I, you know, as much as I love the Finrod speculation and the, the more Christian version, I still like the uncertainty of the way, of the particulars of the ending, that there is an end and that it should be mentioned. I think that's important. But knowing 
when or how precisely. It's it, it, again, it's the author coming on stage element that is so final that I think the story lingers in your imagination when you're not there yet when you don't have that. Absolutely. The author on stage is a really great quote, and I, I do love that quote. Yeah. I'm a big fan of the, uh, the Art of Healed ending. I really, like, I really like that one. I like to think a lot about what an Art of Healed would actually look like, not in, in terms of like geography, in terms mm-hmm. of relationships between the different peoples of, of Art after Art of Healed. I like to speculate on what that would look like because we have sort of like a blueprint with the spring of Arda with the years of the lamps. But even then we had, it was not a perfect Arda, right? It was still Arda marred then. So it's, it's interesting to think about what that would, what Arda healed would actually look like. But those are things I think about when I can't sleep at night. Speaking of geography of Arda healed, I think it would be a lot like Arda that we know. For example, remember how Misty Mountains were supposed to have been raised by Melkor to prevent Aramis writing and how horrible they were. So I think in Arda Hield, there still would be misty mountains, but they will not be infested with orcs and very scary to travel. And this is how kind of few catastrophes came about. And this is why it's healed and contains everything that Arda Mard has, but better. And so I think the geography will be the same. It's just all the dangers removed. I would like to see perhaps a return to the a physical Amon in an Art of Healed. I think that would be that would be wonderful. I think mm-hmm. you could still have the straight road, but perhaps you could have more more peoples could access the straight road. And I'm guessing that Tanya, in this vision of Arda Healed with the Misty Mountains still being there and all the dangers removed, I'm guessing that Karadras would be really nice to people. Yes, <laughs> there would be children sledding down Karadras. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And Old Man Willow would be very nice to everyone. Oh, the kids would climb the trees. Yeah, yeah. they would. <laughs> what would Mordor become? Uh, you, like a, you, a fertile plain. A fertile plain, yeah. You, you definitely want to drink the water from the lake in Mordor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And all those thorns that Sam and Frodo fell onto, they'd be roses. (laughs) We're about to start singing a poison song. (laughs) Would there be a Helcaraxe at all? Or would it just be a winter wonderland you could visit? It'd be like a ski lodge. Yeah. The North Polar (laughs) Bear would help everybody get through it. (laughs) (laughs) So this was a lot of fun. Uh, thank you guys for having us on here. I'd also like to point out that you guys are in Texas and we're both in New York. I feel like there's something to that. Mm. It's the Texas, Texas, York, the, New Texas, the New Texas. The New Texas. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to thank everybody for a really interesting discussion. It didn't quite go as I planned, <laughs> but I had lots of fun and hope everyone else had fun as well. I'm sorry if I'm probably the reason it didn't go as planned. No, it's not you. <laughs> I was born whole. <laughs> so before we go, one of the things that we like to treat our listeners to is when we have a panelist on who speaks another language, we like to have them read the first paragraph of The Hobbit in their language. So Tanya is going to treat us to that right now. Глава первая. Нежданные гости. Жил был в норе под землей хоббит. Не в какой-то там мерзкой грязной сырой норе, если со всех сторон торчат хвосты червей и противно пахнет плесенью, но не в сухой песчаной голой норе, 
где не на что ж сесть и нечего съесть. Нет, нора Блаховича, а значит благоустроенная. Boy, Tanya, that was really good. Can we get a little bit of uh, maybe Rose in the Dark? Um, sure. So I'm reading the last riddle, the time, time one. Okay. Галом решил, что подоспело время спросить что-нибудь действительно непосильное и устрашающее. И вот что он спросил. Уничтожает все кругом. Цветы, зверей, высокий дом. Сшует железо, сталь сожжет. И скалы в порошок сотрет. Мощь городов, власть королей. Его могущество слабей. Бедняга Билба сидел и перебирал в уме имена всех чудовищ и страшилищ о которых слыхал. Но никто из них не натворил столько ужасов сразу. У него было чувство, что будто ответ совсем не про чудовищ, и он его знает, но голова у него отказывалась варить. Он впал в панику, и это всегда мешает соображать. Галлум опять перекинул лапы за борт, спрыгнул в воду и зашлепал к берегу. Глаза его все приближались к Билбо. Убил бы язык, прилип гортани, и он хотел крикнуть: "Дай мне еще время, дай время!" Но у него вырвался только писк: "Время, время!" Билба спасла случайность. Это и была разгадка. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Texas Tolkien Talk podcast. Our goal is to create a podcast where the voices of Tolkien fans worldwide can be heard, and that means we want to hear from you, and so do all of our listeners. If you want to get on the podcast, you can go to our website at texastolkien.com. Click on the link that says getting on the podcast and fill out the simple form with your name, contact info, and topic that you would like to discuss. And I promise we'll make room for you. You can also interact with us on our Facebook page at Texas Tolkien Talk Podcast, where you can see the latest announcements and happenings. If you want to get in touch, you can drop us a line at texastolkientalk at gmail.com. All your thoughts and questions are welcome. Until next time, folks. Namadiate.